get started. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what we've seen of you in your word already in our time of study this week. Lord, I pray as we enter into this time that you would just clear our minds, help us to focus on you. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would just bring to light more things as we swiftly cover these seven chapters. Speak to us, Lord. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In week five, we saw Saul reject the word of the Lord and Samuel anoint David as the new king. So what happens when there are two anointed ones walking around together? Well, what we saw in these seven chapters, it gets a little messy. One afternoon early in the holiday season a few years ago, I walked into my parents' house to find the TV on in the middle of a movie, and I assumed it was on my mom's favorite channel, the Hallmark channel. I'm not going to make friends, I know, with some of you by saying what I'm about to say. It's okay. (laughs) I didn't want to change it because it was her house, even though she wasn't watching it, so I decided I would endure the same overused storylines and overly uncomplicated happy endings. <laughs> and this, this movie seemed much darker than I would have ever guessed. But I thought maybe they were trying out some new stuff for people like me that don't want lots of sappiness. So imagine my shock when the end of the movie comes and someone is buried alive. I did finally get up and take the remote to realize that it was not the Hallmark Channel. It was Lifetime. <laughs> No wonder. (laughs) And so these seven chapters could definitely have been a suspenseful and scary Lifetime movie. We've got flying spears, evil spirits, spies, mass murder, pretending to be insane, thrills of escape, etc. But tucked within these often wild and scary scenes, we ultimately see the contrast between Saul and David grow and the faithfulness and grace of God shown to his chosen one. For time tonight, we'll only be reading directly from a handful of passages, and we're going to start in 1 Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking, that's David, to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So after David kills Goliath, Saul's son Jonathan and David become really close. And it's easy to see the similarities between these two men, especially from what we learned last week. Both trusted in the Lord to overcome enemies that threatened them in the nation of Israel, despite the odds that were against them. Both sought the glory of God and not the glory of themselves. Both looked like the opposite of Saul. We're told they make a covenant together a covenant that will be mentioned more than five times in these seven chapters. And while I don't think that they realized the importance of the covenant when they initially made it, the need for it is proven and grows as the narrative continues and Saul becomes more deranged and desperate. Not only is a covenant cut between Jonathan and David, 
But Jonathan takes off his royal robe, his armor, his sword, bow, and belt. Jonathan is stripping himself of what marks him as the royal king's elect and gives it to David. This would have been unheard of in their region's political culture. Jonathan is not concerned with making Israel his own kingdom. He's concerned with seeking the kingdom of God. This would also be the third time in the short time that we have known David that someone more powerful gives up their weapons to David. We saw Saul try to give him his armor and sword to fight Goliath. We saw David walk away from the battle with Goliath with Goliath's sword. And now we see the son of the king passing his weapons to David. Saul set David over the men of war, and David was successful. Everyone approved of and loved David. We saw last week in chapter 16 that even Saul loved him greatly. But unfortunately, that didn't last long. We're going to pick up in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this, sing and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So upon coming home from battle, women of Israel come out to celebrate the victories and welcome the men home. There was a new hit single at the top of the charts once everyone had heard about David's successes, most notably with Goliath. And let's just say Saul wanted to write an awful review. And this is his turning point. Saul sees the women have ascribed to David more success than him, and he can't handle it. Saul eyes David with jealousy from that point on. And anger is brewing in Saul's heart. And while the people in Saul's life don't see his heart, we are shown what is going on with him internally. And I can't help but think that Saul should have heeded the warning that God gave to Cain in Genesis 4, 6, and 7, where he said, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that anger and murder are much more closely related than we realize. Saul's turning point and his actions here on out are tangible evidence to this reality. The very next day, we're shown a specific time that Saul is struggling with the evil spirit that's rushed on him since God's spirit has departed from him. And David's playing of the lyre is the answer to that problem, as we saw back in chapter 16. Saul has his spear, even though everyone knows he's gone mad, and he throws it at David twice. David escapes. Like I pointed out, though everyone in his real life may have dismissed this behavior because they know that Saul is struggling, we as readers know there's actually more going on beyond the evil spirit. The anger and jealousy from within his heart is already exposing itself in attempted murder. 
The second section in chapter 18 closes with a summary statement for really the rest of 1 Samuel. We're going to read verses 12 through 16. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul, Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So here we find what will drive Saul until his death. Saul fears David because he knows the Lord is with David and knows the Lord has departed from him. And a commentator pointed out that Saul has become the Ichabod figure. The glory of God has departed. Referencing back to chapter 4. David is now the Emmanuel figure, figure, the God with us figure for the rest of the book. Saul gets David out of his daily presence, placing him as a commander of war. And David is the one going out to fight the people's battles which, as you remember, was part of their request for their king. Jonathan, Saul's son, loves David. The people love him. Saul is scared of him. The Lord is with him, and he has success in everything. The last section of chapter 18 can get a little muddy with Saul's daughters, so let's see if we can iron some of those things out. Saul offers his oldest daughter, Merib, to David as a wife. And we learned back from chapter 17, verse 25, that Saul's daughter was to be a prize for whoever took on Goliath. Saul was offering her just so long as David would continue fighting the Philistines. And we're explicitly told Saul is thinking that this will put David in more harm's way. David, who didn't fight Goliath for a bride, but for the glory of the Lord, responds similarly to how Saul did with Samuel back in chapter 9. He humbly cites the family that he comes from. How could someone from his family become the son-in-law to the king? So Saul gives Merib to someone else. But then Saul catches wind that his other daughter, Michal, loves David. And along the same line of thought of David being in more places where harm could come to him, Saul tells David it's now time for him to become his son-in-law. And he uses his servants to persuade David to that end. And this time, David appeals to his poverty. He would have been expected to pay a bride price, and he doesn't have the bride price of what, what the bride price would be for the king's daughter. So using the servants, Saul relays the only bride price he expects is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Certainly unique. Okay, the Bible, never boring. Saul is thinking that this will surely be the end of David at the hand of the Philistines. And David's hand brings him double what he asked for. Michal becomes David's wife. So now we have Saul's daughter who loves David, the Lord is with him. David has more success than ever, and Saul is even more afraid. Which leads to the next step. Saul says out loud what he's already been thinking. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he tells Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. We're going to look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. 
Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I'll tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So Jonathan shares with David immediately his father's intent to kill. He places him in safety and tries to go and reconcile his father's mindset by reminding Saul what good David has brought to him. In verse 5, we see Jonathan use the same language regarding the Lord working a great salvation for Israel through David as Saul did to stop the death of the worthless fellows that had hated him becoming king once he'd successfully defeated the Ammonites back in chapter 11. Saul listens for a moment, and David is brought back into Saul's presence. But then we have more Philistine wars, which means more of David's success. I'm going to read 8 through 10. There was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. So the harmful spirit returns to torment Saul. David's doing what he does. He's playing the lyre. And Saul tests to see if the third time really is the charm with his spear. Israel's enemies are fleeing from David, while David is forced to flee from Israel's king. That night, Michal helps David escape and lies to her father. Where does David go? He goes to Samuel in Ramah. And the text doesn't tell us what David is thinking very often in 1 Samuel. So we have to speculate why he'd go there. Perhaps he's going to make sure he had that whole anointing thing right. Perhaps it was to get pointers on how to handle crazy Saul. Perhaps it was to hear from the Lord, considering he's the Lord's anointed running from the other anointed one. Saul hears David is with Samuel and sends three groups of messengers to retrieve him. In every group, the Spirit of God comes upon them and they prophesy. And that shows God's control over the whole situation. Saul decides after he's realized that three is just not his number, that he'll take care of David himself. So at the very place he met Samuel while looking for the lost donkeys in chapters 9 and 10, where he was told the Spirit of God would rush upon him and that he would prophesy as confirmation, confirmation of him being called as Israel's king. Now the Spirit rushes upon him once more, and he prophesies. But this time, he prophesies stripped of the royal garments, stripped of his will to harm David, stripped of clothes, stripped of honor, stripped of being Israel's true king. The first time we saw Saul in Ramah, we saw the making of a king. And the second time we see Saul in Ramah, we see a king's undoing. 
where the proverb is Saul among the prophets was once used as a phrase to show pleasant surprise. It's now used as a twisted irony. How the mighty have fallen. In chapter 20, while Saul is stuck naked and prophesying, David runs back to Gibeah to see Jonathan. Jonathan seems to be stuck in hope that his dad really did have a change of mindset back there at the beginning of chapter 19. However, David tells him that Saul is serious and he is but a step away from his death. Jonathan says he'll do whatever he can for David. They remember their covenant. Uh, Jonathan calls upon the steadfast love or the covenant love of God for David to not cut off Jonathan's offspring. Killing off the former king's family would have been par for course when a new dynasty took over to prevent any other uprisings. David and Jonathan devise a plan to test out Saul's state of mind at the new moon festival. This festival was a couple of days of rest, of feast, and of sacrifices. The first night, David's chair is empty, and the author tells us that Saul assumes he's ceremonially unclean. But on the second night, Saul asks Jonathan where the son of Jesse is. He won't even call David by his first name. Jonathan answers by the predetermined response, and Saul flips smooth out. He calls names. He curses Jonathan for choosing David's kingdom over his own. Saul tells Jonathan to bring David to him to be killed. And Jonathan questions what of David's actions deserve death. And Saul's spear, I, I, I don't know why he still has that thing, but he has his spear. And it is now hurled at his own son. Jonathan leaves after his father disgraces him. One of the commentators pointed out that Jonathan is a tangible connection to Jesus' words on the cost of discipleship found in Luke 14.26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jonathan renounces all that is his, his father, his earthly kingdom, his life, to be under the one true king. The next morning, the sign is given that David must run, and Jonathan and David are able to see each other once more, both emotional at where all this has led. Scripture tells us that David weeps the most, and I've thought about why that one detail is in there. Can you imagine the stress and the confusion, the uncertainty that David's experiencing? He's been anointed king. He's served Saul faithfully, and now he's being forced to depart from his new home. Jonathan tells him to go in peace, and while that seems absolutely impossible considering David's circumstances, what a testament to the confidence of Jonathan in God's peace that surpasses all understanding, and of David's innocence. This situation is no fault of David's, and Jonathan knows the Lord will guide the steps of his faithful ones. We're told Jonathan goes home, and in chapter 21, we're told David runs to the priest in the city of Nob. After the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines back in chapter 4, it's thought that the tabernacle, the place of priests and worship, was moved from Shiloh to Nob. We're quickly introduced to Ahimelech, the priest, who is the great-grandson of Eli. Ahimelech is trembling because David is alone. 
And the best that all the commentators could guess is that he just senses something isn't right. David was probably a mixture of not knowing who's in cahoots with Saul and not wanting anyone to be in trouble on his behalf, withholds the truth from Ahimelech and says he's on a secret mission from the king and he needs some food. Ahimelech looks around and tells him that he's fresh out, except for the bread of the presence or the show bread. What you saw in your homework this week was 12 loaves, loaves of bread baked weekly as a food offering for the Lord and then only to be eaten by priests. David receives the holy bread at the hand of the priest for his food provisions. And then ominous music kind of covers the scene when the author interjects that someone else is there and watching this all play out, someone detained before the Lord. His name is Doeg, and he is an Edomite, the chief herdsman for King Saul. And we'll see here shortly that Doeg is a bad dude. After food was taken care of for a few days, David asks Ahimelech for a weapon. He says that the king's business required him to be in so much of a hurry that he forgot his sword. Ahimelech looks around and he remembers the sword of Goliath is kept behind the ephod. It's the only physical weapon in the building. And David says, there is none like that. Give it to me. At this moment, I can't help but think of what David has been through in the short amount of time. And when he needs food and protection, God doesn't just provide him the basics. He provides holy bread and the weapon of the Philistine giant that he led David to defeat. Recalling God's faithfulness in David's past is impacting David's present situation and will continue to influence David's future. Just so we remember this isn't a field trip, we see David seek refuge in the Philistine territory of Gath. Do you remember who else was from Gath? Goliath, the giant. David is so desperate. He seeks safety among Goliath's people with Goliath's sword in tow, reminding everyone what he did to the town's hero. The king of Gath, Achish, has heard the song that topped the charts back in chapter 18, and he calls David the king of the land, which terrifies David. It shows that Achish sees him as a threat. David pretends to be insane. The text kind of implies that somehow David knew that Achish wasn't a fan of the high population of madmen in Gath, and David is able to escape. In chapter 22, David leaves Gath and heads back east for Israelite territory. We're going to read chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpeh of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Harith. So David's whole family hears of David's location and heads to him, but not just his family. 
The text says 400 men who were in distress, in debt, or in discontentment gathered around David. What a beautiful picture we see of a gentle and lowly king to be gathering those who are weary and heavy laden. David heads into another enemy's territory, this time on the southeast of Israel, where he seeks safety for his mother and father from the king of Moab. And you saw in your homework that Israel itself served Moab for 18 years during the repeated cycle in the time of the judges before a judge named Ehud killed the king and brought rest to Israel for 80 years. Moab and Israel weren't friends. But you also saw David's family connection to the Moabites. For David's dad was Jesse, and Jesse's dad was Obed, and Obed's dad was Boaz, who redeemed a Moabite woman into the family of Israel. You know her as Ruth. Ruth was David's great-grandmother. In the cave of Adullam, we're also told briefly in verse 5 that David has someone else with him, another prophet, another mouthpiece of God, a man named Gad. And Gad tells him it's time to move. Meanwhile, back in Gibeah, we find King Saul chilling under a tree with his spear in hand, with his servants all about him. He's learned of David's whereabouts, and he's having a paranoid pity party, saying those in his company have conspired against him. He accuses them of not offering up information quickly enough, like the covenant between Jonathan and David. And he accuses David for the first time, of a few more to come, of lying in wait for him, which is absolutely not true. And who but speaks up the old Doeg? seeing he might gain some advantage for sharing what he saw at Nob. Saul wastes no time asking Ahimelech and all his house to come to the king. Saul won't even call Ahimelech by his first name, and he accuses him of treason. Ahimelech, with his conscience clear, appeals to David's status and character, telling Saul truthfully he knows nothing about this matter that Saul has with David. But Saul pronounces his death, and not just his death, but the entire priesthood's death. None of Saul's Israelite servants will carry out the order. They know they are not to harm those anointed unto the Lord. But Doeg, the foreign Edomite, has no hesitancy, and he kills 85 priests along with the entire city of Nob, including men, women, children, and livestock. Saul was devoted to the total destruction of his own people. And not just his own people, but the priests of the Lord, those who mediated between God and man. Which should have taken our minds back to contrast Saul's disobedience with God's enemies, the Amalekites in chapter 15, that were supposed to be devoted to destruction. He saved those useful. He kept back what he wanted from them. But he holds nothing back. From the city of Nob. This is absolutely a horrific and repulsive act on behalf of Saul and Doeg. They are responsible. Yet, I told you Ahimelech was Eli's great grandson. In Saul's killing of Ahimelech and family, God's word to Eli in chapter 2 through the anonymous prophet that his house would be cut off is fulfilled. 
all is fulfilled, including one to remain that would not be cut off. That's Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, who escapes. And he runs straight to David. David, with hindsight, shares that he knew Doeg would tell Saul and takes responsibility for what happened to Abiathar's family, even though his chosen actions intended for Ahimelech to be unharmed. David takes Abiathar under his wing. He comforts him. He offers the opposite of what Saul did to his family. He offers safety to Abiathar. Now, David, the king-to-be, is joined on the run by a prophet and the only remaining priest. Chapter 23 opens with word that the Philistines are attacking a city named Keilah, very close to David's most recent location. So David, with Abiathar, in the ephod, inquires of the Lord twice to see if they should go and fight. So the ephod here refers to the priestly garments that held the Urim and the Thummim, which were objects used to seek divine guidance in particular situations. So God says yes both times, and David and his men successfully fight the Philistines and save the people of Keilah. Instead of rejoicing at the Philistines' defeat, Saul hears David is in Keilah, and he summons all the people to go to war. David asks Abiathar to bring the ephod to him once more, and God reveals that the people of Keilah will give David up. And in my first time of studying 1 Samuel, I was so confused why they would do such a thing. After all, he, he was just their hero. But then I recognized that word travels, albeit a touch slower than today, and Keilah had certainly heard about Nob. They weren't just scared for their own lives, but the lives of those living throughout their whole city. So David and now his 600 men, more are coming to David, and those will become his mighty men that we'll hear about in the rest of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel. Those 600 men with David head into the wilderness of Ziph. And verse 14 of chapter 23 ends by saying, Saul sought David every day, but God did not give David into Saul's hand. The Lord continues to protect his chosen one. While in Ziph, Jonathan decides to pay David a visit. And what a wonder that Jonathan can just find him so easily and quickly, but his dad can't. That's the hand of the Lord. Jonathan comes with purpose to strengthen David's hand in God or to give David encouragement. Jonathan tells him that Saul knows David will be the next king and that Jonathan will be next to him. They renew and recall their covenant once again, but unfortunately, it's the last time they see one another. The Ziphites give up David's location, and Saul thinks God is on his side by giving him a prime opportunity to capture David. We get this quick game of cat and mouse. David moves. Saul finds out and goes after him. David moves again. Saul hears and pursues. David hurries to get away around a mountain, and Saul closes in when a messenger rushes up and announces the Philistines have invaded, and Saul must go. That mountain was then called the Rock of Escape. God said Saul would save his people from the Philistines, and yet Saul is hunting David like he's an enemy. One of Israel's true enemies, the Philistines, God now uses as a source of deliverance. 
In chapter 24, David's last move tonight is to Engedi. And having just moved this summer and still not being fully functional, I feel for him. He's moved a lot in a short amount of time. Saul hears once again that David's in an area and he takes 3,000 chosen men to seek out David and his men. Saul's on this hunt when he decides he needs a break at a cave station. And unbeknownst to Saul, he chooses this station that David and his men are enjoying some rest and probably road trip snacks in. David's men think that this is the day the Lord has made for David to take his kingdom by force and killing the crazy guy that's been chasing them for months. David cuts off a corner of Saul's robe and his heart is struck. He's sensitive to the Lord's guidance. He knows that he's done enough. He tells his men, really the original text in that telling is more forceful. It's more like he restrained his men from putting their hand against the Lord's anointed. David was certain of God's promises. He would wait and trust the Lord's timing of handing the kingdom to him. Saul gets finished at the cave station, and David waits a short amount of time before exiting, too. And we're going to read what David says to Saul in chapter 24, verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David humbly and kindly approaches the man who has been threatening his life. David explains he's never been after Saul. It's the other way around, and he can prove it by showing how close he was from being able to take Saul's life. David calls on the Lord to judge between himself and Saul and tells him his hand will not turn against Saul as Saul's hand has been set to cause harm to David. Saul awkwardly responds. I think a large part of the awkward response is because seeing the piece of robe in David's hand would have reminded him of Samuel's robe that he tore in chapter 15. Saul is undoubtedly hearing Samuel's words in his head, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is the third time in tonight's section where it seems Saul could be so close to repentance. 
but it's only remorse. It's only empty tears for a short time. He doesn't turn away from his sin. He weeps and tells David he's a better man than him. He concedes he knows that the kingdom will be David's, and he asks David to not cut off his offspring. David swears that to Saul, which is easy for him to do. He's already sworn the same thing to Jonathan. And let me tell you, next year, Lord willing, we'll get to see David beautifully keep his end of that deal. Saul heads home, but understandably, David does not. This week, we see a tale of two kings, one so self-centered he can't distinguish between his own thoughts and reality. He takes the lives of his own people out of paranoia. Nearly every time we see him, we see him grasping for what he thinks is the Lord's guidance and trying to look powerful with spear in hand while simultaneously being stripped of his power and kingdom. The other we see who is humble, gentle, not self-seeking, has to solely rely on God's faithfulness in the past to survive his present reality. He saves the lives of his own people out of respect. And nearly every time we see him, we see him inquiring of the Lord's guidance and looking helpless while simultaneously being clothed with the Lord's grace and power. The biblical principle we see shouted over and over in these seven chapters is God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Just like being given more than what David needed, like his relationship with Jonathan, the king's son, the holy bread, and Goliath's sword when he needed provisions, his genealogy for his parents' safety, a prophet and the lone priest sheltering with him, a mountain formed at creation and an enemy used for deliverance. We see God's grace shown abundantly to David. David's trust in God's Past faithfulness gives him the strength to endure his present moment and will continue, he will continue to do so in the future as we'll see in the weeks to come. Now, while we don't get to see much of David's response, his inner thoughts to the grace of God shown to him in the book of 1 Samuel, we do get to see his reactions as he was writing them down in the book of Psalms. Tonight, I'd like to close by reading one written during the period covered in the chapters we studied this week. While the Psalms are always a blessing and a balm to my own soul, the depths of the prayers and songs grow tremendously by knowing what the author was experiencing while penning them. So let's close by reading and praying Psalm 34. Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before the king of the Philistines so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. 
Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Lord, may David's words guide our own hearts in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Thank you for showing grace to your chosen ones. Amen.